0: And welcome to The
1: Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visebview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot, also all one word, .com. And procure a copy of that book amount of works at the farm's official store, which is at the podcast. That is the farm podcast all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right. Today's guest is Avery Peter, and I could not be more delighted to have her back. For over two decades, she has worked as a writer, producer, researcher, story, and writing consultant for Universal Studios, HBO Max, Lionsgate, and 20th Century Fox, and Ed Sullivan Productions. She has contributed to the feature film No Sudden Move, the HBO miniseries Mosaic, and is the story editor of the just-released HBO Max Steven Soderbergh series full circle. Folks, I give you guys the great Laura Shapiro. Laura, thank you so much for joining us again this evening, ma'am.
2: I have so much fun talking to you, Stephen. anytime.
1: any time. Oh, that's great. Happy yeah. to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you here. And tonight we are even more blessed because we have got a very special guest joining us. It's her first time on the farm, but this is going to be a Goldie. I am certain of that. She is joining us as the head of the May Brussels Research Archive and is using the handle Archivist for this particular show. So thank you so much for joining us this evening, Archivist. We are super excited to have you here with us.
3: And thank you for having me. And I'm excited as well.
1: All right, folks, this is going to be an epic show. It'll probably be the first in what may be several deep dives into the legendary parapolitical researcher, Mae Brussel. While her research is widely considered legendary, Mae Brussel's own personal story is every bit as compelling. For this outing, I really wanted to give you guys a sense of where she came from, who she was, and the circles that she intersected with. In many ways, her personal story is just as incredible as her research, as we hope this show will make clear. And uh, there's also one clarification, too, I want to make before we uh, get going here. In the past, I think I had mentioned during an interview that May was a member of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. She was not. That's Mary Farrell, who was actually the member of it um but i should also emphasize a lot of people are members of that it actually most of them are not former intelligence officers it attracts a lot of kooks cosplayers and people who are just trying to keep tabs on what some of these ex-spooks are doing so there could be a lot of reasons why somebody is a member of the fosi as i will explore someday in a very peculiar book that i'm working on but anyway on that note let us start the show (music) let's start unpacking may's background a bit probably a significant little acknowledged factor is her jewish heritage so first off laura what was the whole background of her family and more broadly speaking how did that play into uh what the jewish people were going through in the united states during the era of her birth
2: well up until the napoleonic era Jews in Europe couldn't go to university. They could only hold a small number of jobs. They were in many places locked in to the ghetto at night. They were not full members of society. They couldn't vote. They couldn't hold public office. Uh, and then the French Revolution happened, and Liberté, Égalité, and Fraternité, after much argument amongst the French, <laughs> by the way, decided that they had to include the Jews, which for the first time allowed Jews to be full members of society. And then Napoleon came along about 20 years later, give or take. And th- while he was conquering Western Europe, he uh, uh, he, uh, he brought the Napoleonic Code with him, which brought a lot of the democratic um, innovations back then right that the french revolution had brought in very similar to what was happening in the united states at the time the french revolution as most people know in the american revolution were ideologically almost in lockstep and so for the first time in the very early 1800s a whole a generation of jews could go to university, they could hold any job, not just, say, be bankers or shopkeepers, and they could be elected to office. And culturally, it exploded. A lot of the great thinkers of that era were were that in those first two generations, not just as Jewish thinkers, but in general, huge cultural influences, scientists, poets, artists, etc. And there was a backlash, and particularly in Germany. And this would be mid-1800s. In other words, about 100 years before there was another backlash against Jews in Germany. And there, that was when the first big wave of immigration of Jews came to the United States. In 1790, there were 2,000 Jews in the United States. By 1840, there were 15,000 and they mostly went to the coasts, and they had money already. Often, in many cases, they already were involved in international business, so they had relationships here. And they, and they were not orthodox. They were reformed Jews. They were moved through the world not looking any different than anyone else. And so they were accepted into American society in either middle class or even much higher than that, upper middle class. That is when May's great grandparents came over in that wave of Jewish immigration. Her grandfather Isaac came over first when he was a very young child, eight, and he was, he had, um, he served in the army and he came in 1870 in 1842 he served in the army in world war in the civil war he worked all over the west he worked as a pushcart peddler in new orleans and then he moved to london and started an art store again something that his ancestors just a couple generations before could never have done. Met her mother, who was also a, an upper middle class assimilated Jew in London, and married. And and in 1876 moved back to San Francisco, where they very fast sort of worked their way up and started. Um, she was a seamstress. He, uh, they were both very creative, and they turned to making clothing. And it became very successful. And then they started the store, I Mag, a store called I which was the highest and most glamorous store to the wealthy women of San Francisco. They then had a whole bunch of kids. I think like six or something, and one of whom was um, May's grandfather, and none. That particular that generation did not, was uh, didn't do anything particularly remarkable. But her father Edgar actually left the family early in life because his parents divorced, and he went with his mother's side of the family, and he had no contact with the Magdens until much later, like um, teenager or even po- college age and then reconciled with them to a degree, but he was never that close to them from, from what I've heard. And he became, however, the most important rabbi in the United States. He was the rabbi to the stars. The Wilshire Boulevard temple here in Los Angeles was the place to be with all of the, uh, all of the studio, Uh, moguls who were all Jewish, the Warners, the the Louis B. Mayer, Irving Foulberg, uh, major political and international figures, anyone who was anyone. And Edgar Magden was very involved in ecumenical work. So his relationships were not just with Jews, where it was about assimilation. It was not about the isolation of being an Orthodox Jew. And so the more American they were, the more that that was what they were striving for. And May was born into this in Beverly Hills with a house full of major politicians. Her father was close to both Nixon and Reagan. He was a registered Republican. He was also a 33rd degree Mason. As was, by the way, Isaac, was a Mason. I don't know if he was 33rd, 33rd degree, but Isaac was, became a Mason, I believe, in London before he even came here, the great-grandfather. And so May was born into a, Bever- a very beautiful Beverly Hills home, very wealthy environment with parents who knew Everyone, the most important people, not just in Los Angeles, which included many, many movie stars and powerful and other powerful people, but also major political figures. So you can imagine the kinds of things that were that you absorb as a child growing up. From being around people with that level of power and that level of impact on the culture. And in terms of the overall structure politically that she was born into, she was born into, uh, you know, the in, in the post-World War II era in the United States, in many ways Jews fell into one of two categories. They were either pro-Israel and very much about Moving there eventually, and be, being very um, dedicated to the idea that Jews had to have a homeland given what had just happened, especially and the, and the, those people tended to be more conservative, more orthodox. The reformed Jews actually wanted to distance themselves from that uh, there there is lots of writing from Edgar about this it's uh, and he trod a fine line because he wasn't going to completely reject Israel but his goal and the goal of his his congregation and was to become American not to become Israeli to and that is where because both places are where does safety lie after there's been genocide does safety lie in having our own country, or does safety lie in finally being assimilated into Christian society in a way that where we can never be separated again? And that is is in many ways a political consideration as well as a a cultural or religious consideration. So you can see where how her her worldview was formed even as a child being around all of this
1: laura that was well said and fascinating uh by the way with her dad do was he i'm assuming he was a member of the really famous uh masonic lodge in hollywood right
2: it you know i don't know i would guess yes he would be do you know if he was a um, The way he described it in an interview I read was something he did when he was young because it was just something that one... It sort of felt like this is just something one does if one wants to function at certain levels of society.
1: And I know that... Remember
2: body. that Isaac, his great-grandfather, was also a Mason. I would guess that... And I think the that middle generation that just was sort of seemed like they were healthy and happy and lived in San Francisco and, and were part of they, – they were successfully assimilated, basically, and lived a good life. Um, and I, I think I read that they were all – the at least obviously just the boys were, um, were also Masons as well. So I think it was just something his family did, but also he was very much about status, Edgar
1: yeah and I
2: and, and, and and so it's the kind of thing that that he would do because consistently throughout his life as he was indeed a power broker himself on an international stage he gave gave he presided at at both richard nixon and ronald reagan's presidential inaugurations he did a prayer as the representative of the, of the jewish community i'm not exaggerating in saying he was the most important reformed Jewish leader in the country at, at the time. Um, and he was very good friends with Nixon, by the way. <laughs> There's a very long interview with him that was done in 74 where they ask him about Watergate, and he's like, yeah, well, those are allegations and nothing's been proven. <laughs>
1: yet." Okay. Cause yeah, especially because May felt like she had exposed a lot of the players in the Watergate saga. I think like two years before. Yeah, the, before well,
2: well. Season. Here's what's interesting, okay, about um, about that. Here's what he said in 1974 about May in that oral history. My daughter is an idealist. She's a very fine person. She has her own ideas about many things that aren't mine. <laughs> But nothing that I could say against her. She's bright. She's very much of an individual individualist. She helps get people out of jail. She's working on theories of assassination, some of which may be correct or incorrect. She's up in Carmel, and she lives her life. I have no conflict with her. And then he goes on to talk about May's brother Henry, um, about who worked for, who was like a stockbroker, and how wonderful he is, and what a great life. Yes.
1: Graceless.
2: um And, you know, and yes, it's 1974, and the person interviewing him isn't really interested that much about politics. They're mostly talking about the history of the community. It's, it's a 300-some page oral history. It's actually quite well done and comprehensive. And, um, but... Um, he you know is clearly uncomfortable when when Watergate is brought up and it's 74 and the when it was published so the and, and it, they, the guy worked on it for quite a while so could have even been a little earl, earlier than 74 and so I, I obviously when he when that was done she hadn't started really digging into it yet
1: Well, let's start getting into May's uh, origin story proper here. So where did she go to school and what was her life like before launching her radio show? Um, Archivist, do you want to start us off on this one?
3: Oh, sure. She went to Rodeo Elementary and Beverly Hills High School. Since her dad was the rabbi to the stars, he often officiated on world cruises and the whole family got to go on travels to the world and far far away she was exposed uh, pardon me exposed to egypt she rode camels and she saw the pyramids when she was taken to india at the age of seven or something it was early in her life and that's when her inner activist was born she saw poverty and the imbalance of wealth and the inhumanity of the world her life had been fairly comfortable But in the travel, she saw people barefoot with no bathrooms, no food, no clean clothes, no clean water. And that left a really great impression on May. And that's when she rose up and she started to, oh, God, she fought the bullies and she fought for the underdog. Um, As far as her life, she moved up. um, Did I cover her college?
1: No, you did not. No.
3: Okay, Um, she was one of the very first women to go to Stanford, and her major was philosophy. Um, She worked for, I'm starting that one over, she worked, I can't even talk tonight, Um, she would go to PTA meetings, and she would speak up, she'd go to town halls, and talk about a wide variety of subjects, and that was basically her life until she launched her radio show.
1: Uh, Laura, did you have anything else to add in terms of her uh, backstory?
2: Well, um, the, the 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 I mean, there are a couple of this is a fun little note that uh, note that um, that uh, she lived in um, Carmel, I guess, next door to Lloyd Bridges of Sea C- Hunt and Airpl- of Sea C- Hunt and Airplane, and most notably Jeff Bridges and Beau Bridges' father and was friends with them. Um and um and so, you know, you know, it's, the Big Lebowski would I, I, I think I think the Big Lebowski would be really impressed that Jeff Bridges knew Mae Russell.
0: <laughs>
2: um it just uh struck me as kind of perfect.
1: Yeah, no, I was, like, thinking, especially since it's sort of like a a play on Raymond Chandler's, uh, you know, The Big Sleep and a few of the old, like, detective stories. Well, uh,
2: The Big Lebowski, the character, The Big Lebowski, there's a line in The Big Lebowski where he talks about the Port Huron statement, not the compromised later version, but the the good one. And the reason that line is in there, a little aside, a little film industry aside, the character in The Big Lebowski, Jeff Lebowski, is based on... um, Oh, God, now I'm blanking on his name. Jeff Dowd is the character in The Big Lebowski is based on a man named Jeff Dowd, who was a very important figure in the independent film production community when the Coen brothers were coming up and a real character. Right. Then it lived in Venice, California and was very it was just he was he looked like the Big Lebowski. He acted like the Big Lebowski. Right. But unlike the Big Lebowski, he was, you know, financially secure, if nothing else, and involved with the film business. And but he was an activist in the SDS with Tom Hayden at all. Tom Hayden wrote the Port Huron Statement. So the Big Lebowski, the character of the Big Lebowski is for people who catch that, is someone who was a, a radical campus activist in the 60s. Who, um, I mean, May wrote about the Chicago Eight, didn't she? Yeah, I believe. Pretty sure. She did. I think she did. Yeah. This yeah yeah so you know it's there that that that's a very inside joke right well,
1: wasn't uh was abby
2: <laughs> but that but the chicago idea eight? that jeff bridget the big lebowski knew made russell
1: is perfect didn't abby hoffman uh, wasn't he part of the chicago eight <laughs> yes he yeah. was abby hoffman okay so, um yeah, Ab- yeah, abby hoffman sure jerry he... rubin tom
2: hayden yeah, because Abby Kaufman um, uh, and know, uh,
1: Paul Krasner were good friends. I'm pretty sure, man. Yeah, no,
2: yes, and Paul Paul was an unindicted co-conspirator in that trial.
1: Yeah, that's yeah,
2: right. That's <laughs> and and Jeff Dowd was like the, the you know Tom Hayden. Where the Tom Hayden was the serious one, right? You had the Yippies, and then you had the Students for Democratic Society, wh- who were who, which was came out of the University of Michigan initially. That's hence the Port Huron statement, right? And, um, you know, Tom was a serious guy. He ended up as everyone knows. At, and, and so you had the yippies on one side and you had the serious organizers, the serious political organizers. And I, I actually knew Tom and, and, he was a very serious man. <laughs> and, um, he, he never lost that. And, uh, so you know it, it's uh connections within connections there
1: yeah no we'll definitely get into that because this whole milieu is really fascinating but before we get into that uh, we-
2: you know carmel you know the the other hollywood person who famously lived in carnell um and still does is clint eastwood he was mayor oh that's really not back then recently
1: he was mayor. yeah 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 Oh, no that's definitely-
2: as a matter of fact if you if people want to see what the area may lived in looked like back then the movie play misty for me which was Clint Clint Eastwood's first directing first movie he directed as well as started was shot in Carmel on location there and is is you really see the location and it's of- pretty much concerned, early 70s
1: by the way, was Jeff Bridges a part of that whole activist scene in the 1980s with, like, Bert Snyder and um, Ed Asner? And all not, no, he was not. Okay, okay. All right, well, getting back here to May. Right the, here.
2: The, the Bridges family is um, involved in um, aid. They're, the big issue, Jeff, which um, Lloyd started and Jeff and Bo continue, is hunger world hunger but they weren't involved so much in the political scene but they were involved in the aid the foreign aid um ngo world and those two things touch on one another but they weren't part he wasn't part of what all of the stuff that i was involved with back then
1: okay okay just wanted to check on that Well, all right, let's get into a little bit more of May's background here. So what sparked her interest in parapolitics? Uh, Do you want to start us off with that one, Archivist?
3: Oh, sure. She was at home doing her motherly thing, taking the kids to dance lessons, art lessons, and everything was going along quite normally until the president was murdered on November 22nd of 1963. She was devastated by this loss. But something happened on Sunday, November 24th, when Oswald was shot. He was on the television going, I'm I'm just a patsy. I didn't do it. Somebody come represent me. And then somebody killed him on live television, which was Jack Ruby. And someone let Jack Ruby in with a gun to that police station. And Oswald did not have a lawyer and no protection whatsoever. And May said to herself, she said, this looks like a conspiracy. And from that point on in May's life, she spent her life reading, comparing articles, listening to news, collecting books, and especially when the Warren Commission came out in 1964, she bought the 26 volumes and she researched them for eight years. In the third year of her research of the Warren Commission, she was in contact with Jim Garrison, District Attorney of New Orleans, And she offered him names, dates, and information concerning the murder of the president. She was invited to visit Jim in 1967.
0: Well, okay. so here
1: was a question I had about in regards to her Jewish background. Because one of the things about May Mm -hmm. I know that was especially striking in regards to her take on the Kennedy assassination was I think, I don't know if she was the first, but I think she was certainly one of the earliest researchers to really implicate the Nazis in the assassination. And obviously, I mean, she did so much with, um, you know, in chronicling the fascist revival in the United States in the post-war years. Uh, do you think that uh, her background and especially her family's background as part of the uh, Jewish community oh. played a role in her? Of course, of,
2: of course, of course, of course. You can't be part of that. You couldn't, in 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 uh, given when she grew up, especially now we're a few generations down, and, you know, younger pe- Jews, they didn't have family who lived it. N- you know, May's parents were, I mean, everyone in the the world that she grew up in was deeply affected by World War II. Every adult she knew growing up, and it, and it didn't... All the choices that were made were measured by that. When I was speaking earlier about the more con- the the, tr- the sort of binary between Israel and assimilation in terms of the thinking of Jews after World War II, what that's driven by is fear that it's going to happen again. How do we prevent this from happening to again to forever? Right. And one answer is we have our own country. And the other answer is we become truly part of whatever country we're in. And even now, Jews are still othered. It's got, we've had a lot of backslide. A- and it's starting to get scary out there. And so something that I came to from my own political involvement, and I'm younger than May, but I still had parents who were alive during World War II, for instance, Um, that when I was uh, an avid um, radical activist at age 19, I had a big, long discussion with a Black activist who was a little older than me. And part of what we were talking about is oppression of both black people and of Jews. And he, at one point said to me in the conversation, the difference between me and you is you can change your name and pass. And you can't argue with that. And so that's what the, but Jews had not been able to pass in Europe. Even in her parents' generation, even in her generation, to be honest. And so the idea of assimilation, which is what her father was very much about, if you read his work, is uh, what was both fear-driven, which means elemental, which means something any child is going to pick up on, even if they don't know why or what it is or what the adults are talking about, and it was also about the choices that that her family made in terms of how they placed themselves and therefore their children in the world and there would be an absolute awareness I, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of the Simon Wiesenthal is in Los Angeles. There's a direct relationship between the Wilshire Boulevard Temple and the Wiesenthal Center. The Jewish community in Los Angeles is very much involved with Holocaust studies. So she would have known all of that.
1: Well, also, this would have been during the whole era when they were actively trying to hunt down some of the Nazi war criminals on
2: South
1: America and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, there was, you know, go watch Marathon Man.
1: Yeah, that's what I was just thinking of, actually. Um, Is it
2: safe? See, about fear again, right? Famous line from that movie. The evil Nazi dentist leaning, uh, leaning over Dustin Hoffman saying, is it safe? Again, all about fear, one way or another. That's fear coming from the other side.
1: And um, I know another fascinating anecdote that I uh, had read, uh, I think it was in Paul Krasner's biography, uh, about May during the uh, time frame, uh, a little before she had started to do public appearances with her research about the... Uh, you know the state of her house where she was you know pretty much full-blown um matthew mcconaughey and true detective you know with the um, <laughs> the diagrams up all over the walls <laughs> and that kind of thing Trilled.
0: so it, it's a
1: wonderful portrait in my mind i think where she has this sort of suburban family life and yet the walls are covered with like the different diagrams <laughs> of the kennedy assassin mm-hmm. and all oh uh, yeah 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 no it's yes yes if matt damon's character in detective russ cole was a suburban housewife maybe you can get something of an idea i guess what this was apparently described as the setup as um so it was uh definitely it must have been a colorful sight, to put it mildly and uh mm-hmm. much the same could be said about northern california during this whole era um it was somewhat jokingly referred to in the uh, lost boys when the stand-in for santa cruz was referred to as the murder capital of the world but it really wasn't mm-hmm. far from the truth <laughs> so do you mm-hmm. want to take that
2: laura well i mean Anyone who, you know, uh, there, uh, where do you start? I just made a list. Hate ashbury the Pan- the Black Panthers in Oakland, the free speech movement at Berkeley, LSD experiments at Stanford, as well as other um, remote viewing CIA-based experiments at Stanford, right, and all kinds of other things. Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, which actually grew out of Stanford because Kesey first did acid during the studies at um, a, a, the LSD studies at at Stanford. Um, the Zodiac Killer. Anton LaVey and um, the Church of Satan. General CIA acid experiments that went back actually to the late 50s where they would just, you know, get, they gave acid to like you know a whole party i think it was i think it was like just they would just dose people at like and throw a big party and dose everybody to see what happened the grateful dead also part of that scene right and then you have you know on the darker side jim jones in the people's temple and the patty Hearst kidnapping with the symbionese liberation army which may believed was um a cia op that was uh well, you know, that that uh, based on the I'm sorry, let's start that again. Um, you know, the first thing I ever read that May wrote was the, the her pieces about Patty Hearst and in the, in the Symbionese Liberation Army. And it scared the crap out of me. It was as much as any horror movie. I was literally terrified, reading, staying up reading till like three o'clock in the morning. And the story she told was about Vacaville prison and experiments done probably by the CIA on prisoners there, mind control experiments, among other things. Manson went through there. There's a lot there. There, There's it's not unreasonable to think that he may have been part of that program. Um, I and believe archivist, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. Right. From reading her work.
3: Um, May believed that Manson and the SLA were run in similar fashions. And while she was mm-hmm. saying that, she was getting phone calls that were threatening from Sandra Good of the Man- Manson family and also letters from her as well.
2: Ooh, that's terrifying.
3: So she went out. Yeah, so a lot of people time. don't know
2: that not everyone went from the Manson family went to prison and they were running around doing dirty deeds like threatening may.
3: Yes. And (laughs) even um, after
2: Manson was caught.
3: That's when she went off the air for the first time, but in great may fashion, she came back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She had a lot of courage. She really did. Uh, And there's also a strong argument to be made um, that Jim Jones was also part of that, that he had contacts both to Vacaville, not as a prisoner, Uh, But that it was all that the People's Temple and the ultimate uh, mass suicide, mass murder in Guyana and the murder of Leo Ryan in Guyana was a CIA. Leo Ryan's five kids sued the CIA trying to prove that no one's ever that had never happened before. No one had ever sued the CIA. So it was a hotbed. I mean, Northern California was lit, the Bay Area. Um, And Carmel is a very beautiful, idyllic place. Um, It's also only about 25 miles away from Esalen, which was the center of the human potential movement. And shared a lot of the same scientists with a lot of the who were involved, who were in, in, part of, say, the experiments at Vacaville, or it's, or the work that was done at Stanford. So there was a lot going on. Mm-hmm.
1: I know another interesting uh, thing that was sort of playing out in the early 70s involved Charles uh, Weness, I believe is how it was pronounced, um, who was this uh, purported hippie uh, from Texas who uh, Paul Krasner had later come out and had accused effectively being a naval intelligence officer who had had uh, some links to Tex Watson uh, and potentially that had tied into the broader Manson thing. But I found this to be especially uh, interesting because when Nas was involved a lot in uh, the Texas psychedelic scene, especially with like the 13th floor elevators and uh, many of the other bands in that area, which is quite interesting, interesting. because um, the really the Texas psychedelic scene, a lot of people don't realize this, but the one in Austin, uh, in many cases, arguably predated The San Francisco scene, of course, they were using um, peyote uh, being out there around the Mm -hmm. cacti and so forth, but it was quite active by the... Uh, the early 1960s and a lot of people again don't realize this but a lot of texas musicians ended up in san francisco and played a big role in uh launching the whole scene there of course janice Joplin. janice
2: joplin
1: yeah yeah so it's interesting that this one ass guy ends up like in texas and then he relocates out there to san francisco in the bay area around 67 because again if you know the whole thing with austin there you know in this time frame when the psychedelic scene really got going there with the 13th floor elevators there was some very weird stuff you know this is the university where charles whitman uh whitmore uh famously had uh, killed quite a few of the students uh, from a sniper's nest at the tower there and uh, there was just oh, mm-hmm. kind of craziness going on so yeah this is interesting that when this very little acknowledged guy and the whole manson thing ended up in um this region in this time frame in fact I think he might have been living around Carmel because if I'm not mistaken it was May's neighbor who had potentially seen uh, some of his links to the uh, Manson family is that right archivist
3: uh, what happened May had a very great friend her name was Louise James and May and Louise saw someone who they thought was Tex Watson going into this house with the military people coming upon it as well. And they found that suspicious. Well, Louise James, if you look her up, uh, was into a lot of different political things. And I guess this Tex Watson connection was like icing on the cake. And um, she ended up in a mental institution uh, and no one saw her after she went into the mental institution. And May was to be um, one of the key witnesses at the Rolling Stone trial with Paul Krasner because she's the one that initially gave him that information and he got corroborating evidence from other people.
1: Just to interject here, um, this was like around the time Rolling Stone was, I, I think, what was it, sued for $425 million or something like that. Um, is part of the lawsuit that you're referencing Uh, when us when us uh, what sued them for defamation I think of character or something like that along with Krasner and it was this huge lawsuit Um, I think eventually Mm -hmm. they settled out of court for only like a hundred thousand dollars but one of the conditions was that Krasner uh, could not mention when asked by name I think in printer you know publicly for the rest of his life effectively he uses a pseudonym for him in his biography (laughs) so the whole thing is very curious and again this was kind of also unfolding around the time that paul krasner was um working for larry flint and this in turn would have been around until late 70s which is when larry flint was also working with good old mitch warbell um the infamous arms trafficker who was an oss veteran um was indicted for smuggling marijuana in the 1970s was a good friend of robert vesco and warbell had headed uh flynn's security detail and then eventually it was uh taken over by another gentleman whose name escapes me but one of his um underlings was good old william mincer uh alias manson too wow. who was later wow <laughs> implicated in um the son of sam killings by Mary terry which also linked him to the manson killings so just to give you guys an idea of how incestuous all of this mm-hmm. uh was. It
2: really moment. is. And uh, and Paul was certainly at the center of all you know, of so much. It's quite extraordinary, actually.
1: Yeah, we'll get into that in just a second because it's pretty amazing. Um well yeah, actually, yeah, let's uh let's just dive into Paul now. So like Laura, do you want to give us a little bit more of an overview of his sure, Sure.
2: Well well I have you know, to start with, I knew Paul. He was he was a friend of mine. We lived, we were neighbors in Venice, California, in the nineties, and um, worked on a lot of the same political things. At the time, I was producing a lot of con- benefit concerts and events, a lot of human rights work, and Paul. I would invite Paul to come and speak, and you know, inviting Paul to come and speak was never just a speech. He he was a stand up comedian and it was wonderful and we became friends and uh, so I have a lot of affection for him. He he was a wonderful man. He really was. Um, some things I didn't know about him um, until I started reading up on him a little bit that he was a child prodigy on the violin and performed at Carnegie Hall by the age of six. which is very interesting. Um, he had, uh, you know, his early... Um, journalism. He he was interested in comedy from the beginning. His first big job was working at Mad Magazine in the 50s. And then he founded The Realist during that time. Um, he also, and he was part of the stand-up comedy circuit in New York, where he met Lenny Bruce, which is the collaboration that where he well where paul first had a really big cultural impact in a way that would become common for him for the rest of his life um he um co-wrote lenny bruce's autobiography um and uh which was called how to talk dirty and influence people published in 1959 before lenny crashed and burned right and so, and it was a big hit and was definitely at the front of the culture. Bruce, Lenny Bruce, as everyone knows, pushed boundaries. That was who he was. And so by the time he, and then he worked at Playboy, where he w- knew Robert Anton Wilson, who later went on to become a, um, uh, 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 you know, a uh, uh, fairly often be contribute to the realist. And uh, all the while that he was running the realist, as in, uh, he was also at the beginning working for other publications like Playboy and, write, uh, and writing magazine articles. He was always, always had at least one foot in the softcore porn world. Um, and he used the realist to push those boundaries. R. Crumb used to do a lot of illustrations for the realist, and um, they were um, pornographic, bluntly pornographic. They were funny, but they were pretty extreme. They were things that maybe wouldn't be considered politically correct now. And um, so... Somewhere in there, he got involved with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and was, along with them, one of the founders of the Yippies. As a matter of fact, he was the one who came up with the term Yippie. Um, the publicity really focused on Jerry and Abby, and but Paul was always the third guy who was running things who was there. And I always felt that, you know, Paul was – he was um, disabled. He had a, cl- I think it was a club foot. Um, he was short and um, not someone, especially back then, who you would put in front of the camera. And... I always felt like he got kind of the short end of the stick in ter- in terms of when people talk about the yippies, they talk about Hoffman and Rubin. And he was, by everything I've ever heard, an equal behind the scenes with the two of them. And I really do feel like, it, because they were so media oriented, that it had a lot to do with what he looked like. And no one's ever said that. I just feel like, you know, it's like those two guys are camera ready and he isn't. And that's wrong, and it's sad, because he was wonderful. And, you know, when I was putting people on stage, I put him on stage a whole bunch of times, and everybody always loved him. And so um, he was, uh, and, and, you know, he was someone who would always take a chance in terms of pushing the envelope. And so a lot of mainstream people, when they wanted to write something, that they knew they couldn't publish in the mainstream media would publish in the realist people like Woody Allen and Joseph Heller who wrote catch 22 and um, you know Kurt Vonnegut etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, the wonderful thing and I think we could probably post a link to this is that the entire archive of the realist is online anybody can look, read any any um, edition of The Realist from the beginnings in the late 50s all the way through to 2001 when he stopped publishing it.
1: Some other interesting things about Paul Krasner, too, that I, I noted when I was uh, reading his biography, which I highly uh, recommend, by the way. I guess it would be autobiography, uh, Confessions of a Real yeah. Unconfined and Not uh, Misadventures in the Counterculture by Paul Krasner. So a few notes here. Uh, One, I thought it was quite fascinating that uh, he had started The Realist quite early in uh, the late 1950s, and um, he had engaged in a correspondence with members of the Fordian Society around this time. And uh, given this time frame, this would have had to have been the original one that Theodore Dresser had uh, established, which is quite interesting, um, because also around this time, uh Krasner had also begun to correspond with Robert Anton Wilson, who was a longtime friend of his. And I think that this is very significant because this court or excuse me, Fordianism. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Freudianism has probably had a much greater influence on counterculture and various fringe ideologies than it's generally given credit for. On the one hand, you can sort of draw a direct lineage to apology and especially the more mystical brand uh, through Emmett Lane who was already kind of embracing and uh, propagating the interdimensional ultra-terrestrial what-have-you hypothesis for UFOs uh, all the way back in the late 1940s, well before Jacques Vallée and John Keel got into this. But there was also quite a bit of absurdist humor amongst the members of the early 14th society. You had a lot of figures like Dorothy Parker who were quite known for their wit and that probably led to, let's just say, a fair degree of performance art maybe amongst the early society So I think Mm -hmm. that's another aspect when you look at things like discordianism that's a lineage that's not often acknowledged, but it probably should be more so. And it's especially significant, I think, in this context that a guy like Krasner would be a bridge there. So another interesting thing is... Paul
2: was very discordian. Yes. I mean, whether he might identify with it or not. And he certainly knew those guys.
1: i I mean i think he was definitely a huge influence on operation mindfuck in fact ironically he sort mm -hmm. of did a proto version of that with the what was it the parts left out of the kennedy assassination were like yes yes he had that whole fabrication about what the corpse or something with lbj and i think even like daniel ellsberg had thought that was real for a long time even though it was Mm -hmm. a number of hopes that he had perpetuated Uh,
2: i would bet paul was very proud of that
1: yes no he definitely,
2: the, the, he if, definitely Dan, if daniel ellsberg thought it was real that would have been no, a real he mentions that several false. times
1: in his biog- or autobiography <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah um yeah so another another interesting thing about krasner is his relationship to norman mailer he was actually norman mailer's brother-in-law for a time paul's first wife was norman mailer's sister and paul's daughter holly is norman mailer's niece. And that is Hmm. extremely interesting because by the 1970s, a uh, Norman Mailer's assistant knew a gentleman involved in New York City's uh, somewhat revered occult scene around the magical child named Peter Lavenda. Uh, I'm a big Peter
2: Lavenda fan. Yeah,
1: yeah, this is right (laughs) around the time that the Simon Necronomicon was supposedly being translated by them there and of course as many of you are probably aware Naylor would later do a lot to boast uh, Lavenda's career by writing the introduction to um, his Unholy Alliance book uh but it's also interesting to note that uh in one of the farm patron interviews I did with a gentleman who was also involved with that scene there was a certain uh future US Army colonel with a strong background in psychological warfare who also happened to be going to the magical child during the late 1970s with this whole crowd who we will talk about here uh towards the end of this show so again just to point out how uh, incestuous all of this is. <laughs> uh, so well, that...
2: and uh, mentioning Norman Bay- Mailer and Levanded, Unholy Alliance, that brings us back around to Nazis and uh, the Nazis uh, surviving in uh, past World War II and living in South America, which, and, which kind of dovetails back with May's research.
1: And one final uh, interesting thing I wanted to point out about Paul Krasner, of course, the connections to Larry Flynn are also quite interesting, but um, by the, uh, I believe it was around 83, 84, something like that, he was accused, I believe, of being part of a mind control circle that had activated John Hinckley to take a shot at Ronald Reagan. And these accusations came from none other than the larouche organization so paul annafowl of lyndon larouche which i think is extremely interesting um especially since as my uh my research partner keith allen dennis has so uh, eloquently described the larouche organization as effectively wannabe jewish or um jewish wannabe nazis Um.
2: Well, interestingly, around the time I met Paul, I also met a man named Alan Edwards, who was a television producer He's very, very successful in sort of the early to mid sixties and he had been he, he had he was also involved in occult research he had gone down to um uh, to Haiti to find there was a race between him and Wade Davis to find the zombie. Uh, the the true method of turning people into zombies, which actually is a toxin. That's what Wade Davis, who wrote The Serpent in the Rainbow, he's like a Harvard professor, um, went down there and became came an, an, and discovered this toxin that they give people. And that's what makes people who they think it's, they, it slows you down so much. They think you're dead, they bury you. And then you, you know, you, you, arise and have brain damage, essentially. And um, he wrote a nonfiction book about that. There was a movie, a fictional movie made out, made from it um, by Wes Craven, really wonderful movie, actually. Um, and, but Alan was sort of in a race to find this with them. And he was also involved with this crystal skull shear in Brazil, uh, who was very well known at the time and um, somehow got involved with Lendon LaRouche, not as a um, believer, but as an enemy. And LaRouche sued him and ruined him. The first time I went to Alan's house, he was in the middle of selling it, and he'd already had to sell his all his furniture. So we were standing around toasting champagne in a in house completely devoid of furniture. And I met him through the same circles that I met Paul.
1: Interesting, yeah. No, the it's always fascinating to see like the specific uh, targets the LaRouche organization has singled out mm-hmm. over the years, as well as some of the people that they were collaborating with. So, um, yeah. Well, I
2: think Alan tweaked the bear. I, I think Alan, what Alan did is uh, they were somehow got, uh, came into contact with one another in such a way that Alan challenged him. And he and said things about him publicly, possibly because that's what he came out, came against, came after him for.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, they weren't any joke. I mean, they actually almost the LaRouche organization almost brought Roy Cohn to heel in the 1980s when Mm -hmm. they started launching this intensive, like, harassment campaign essentially against him. And that, um, you know, that took something. They
2: were well organized and they had a lot of money and they used the legal system. Alan was not the only person they sued into oblivion.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they very much operated like the Church of Scientology in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, very
2: much, yeah.
1: But archivists... I, I can't
2: remember what the connection between the zombie serum and the crystal skull in Brazil and Ru, but there was a connection there more than just Alan being involved with all three of those things. Mind you, this is a guy who produced like daytime game shows in Hollywood.
1: Well, they did have a lot of interest in politics in Latin America. I actually found that the LaRouche movement was quite big in Mexico, for instance, and I believe uh, several Mm other countries as well. So it could have been an issue with that as well. Um, But um, archivist, uh, what do you have on May's relationship with Paul Krasner?
3: Well, I had asked the family on how May originally met Paul, and they were uncertain of that, but they were very, very close. They were appreciative of each other's talents. Um, Paul's family and May's family were very close, and she did a lot of shows with him. And to hear one of the many shows she did with him, um, check the date of seven fifteen to 72 and the interaction between the two of them gives you an insight onto the relationship
2: i know that he thought the world of her I, re- I asked him about her and he just sung her praises
1: he also arranged funding for her too right um i have because i know there's the story that she had gotten funding from John Lennon and, and yoko ono and I, in his uh, autobiography paul had essentially argued that it, it it came via him that she had gotten the money from it
2: did Okay. Yeah, the, I think that's the way I've always heard the story. I don't know if archivist has any more information you know, about
3: that. It was through Paul that May got um, her first article published in the Realist on who killed Martha Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And um, just on a side note, May and her daughters were invited. This is how weird the times were. Just to think of growing up, and they went over to and they had milkshakes at John lennon's house because he invited them over to have milkshakes that's so wonderful
2: that's a great story i love that
1: yeah no absolutely and so she did she interact then with like a lot of the other figures around krasner
3: okay um that i'm really not sure of there are so many parties that went on at her house just these magnificent dinner parties with everybody would get invites and they just come and hang out and talk to each other and that was back in the time no cell phones so people really had to talk to each other and some (laughs) of the best conversations probably went on and i would have liked to be at one of those but i found may way too late she was already passed so
1: do you have any? Yeah,
2: questions? to be at what, the, the kind of the, the kind of gathering that one can imagine she might have, right, would be amazing. Yeah, it's
3: yeah. so funny because of the fact um, one New Year's Eve, she was to have a party, and one of her good friends came over, and her friend was like, Well, where is everybody? And Mae said, Oh, I got so busy, I forgot to send out the invitations. So it was only her <laughs> and her friend. <laughs> And so they were they they heard this noise and they were like, oh, my God, is it the CIA CIA out out there? Are they listening to us? What's out there? And it just turned to be a mouse, (laughs) a little (laughs) tiny mouse chewing on something. And they thought it was the CIA.
1: Getting into well, May's not especially known uh, for her connections to the new age, but she was cloaked Close to Esalen, right, Laura? Could you uh, get into that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, Big Sur and Carmel are 25 miles apart. So, uh, uh, And there was lots of overlap in the circles that we've already talked about from Esalen. Because Esalen also had a, a, a foot in the political world. And, and certainly anything having to do with um, any mind control experiments... Any hallucinogenics, any behavioral science the the kind of cutting edge radical behavioral science that was going on up there that came out of a lot of the um, same places like Stanford and that kind of thing, and was then used at places like Vacaville, right? Those same scientists, those same thinkers. We're, we're all part of Esalen, either directly as permanent residents there or lots and lots of people came through to do seminars and workshops and things like that. And it was a major center of a gathering place. And so while I don't know of any specific connection between May and Esalen, it was the same circles of people in um, that me- same ne- nexus up there.
3: May would take her kids to Esalen for the annual Joan Baez Big Sur Folk Festivals that were held there on the lawn from, um, I think it was mm-hmm. 1965 to 1969. Uh, the kids got to see jo- Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell, Chambers Brothers, and Arlo Guthrie and Mama Cass. I mean, there's just a wide variety of good music going on the lawn at Esalen.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, as well as all the seminars and Scientists going there to meet with each other, I mean Eslin was uh, in certain circles it 's painted as kind of sinister i never I knew a lot of scientists um, who were involved in LSD research and other kinds of uh, mind expansion kind of research and they they, they all ha- they all had relationships there would go there to do seminars and teach and there were, there were a lot of really beneficial things that came out of Eslin. We would not have. Um, legalized hallucinogenic therapy In that's now legal in Oregon and probably going to be legal in California within the next year, possibly. There's a bill working its way through the state, the state government right now um, without Esalen. Um, so both, that was the dichotomy of all that CIA-funded research because a lot of it was given to scientists who did very worthwhile things. And a and lot that happened at Esalen was part of that, as well as having some very creepy stuff go on, too.
1: <laughs> well, besides Esalen and the crowd around Paul Krasner, who were some of the other counterculture figures that uh, May may have known Archivist?
3: Well, there are so many, but uh, we mentioned Jan and Yoko. Um, another one is Dick Gregory. Uh, but The daughters remember him coming over to the house a lot for the parties and oddly enough he was one of the first people to see this zapruder film i think shown on national television mm-hmm. i think it was with the geraldo in the 70s and so um he was always at the Brussels house so it made for interesting dinner talk
2: <laughs> well, the thing about dick gregory is that he was Um, One of the first, as a matter of fact, I think he kind of predates Cosby and a few of the other people who were really early black stand-up comedians who had success in the white world. Um, And, you know, Bill Cosby, the Bill Cosby we know now and the things we know about him is very different than when he was a young man and breaking barriers And Dick Gregory was also doing that, and he got so caught up in, just like May did, right, in the conspiracy theory world, that his career kind of really went, he pretty much stopped doing comedy. And I remember that he was partnered, he wrote several books, I believe, with Mark Lane, who was a very well-known conspiracy theorist writer um, around the Kennedy assassination, And I would think that May probably knew Mark Lane pretty well, too, right?
3: Uh, May knew Mark Lane, but they had a a difference of opinion and they had a falling out at some point.
2: Interesting. You
3: know, Mark believed that, you know, the shots came from the grassy knoll and he wouldn't accept, I guess, any other way or any other possibility. So they had a a falling out and a difference of opinion.
2: Well, that's closed-minded of him, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Well, Mark Lane had a bit of a sketchy background as well in a few cases, too, so um, another thing about Gregory, too, he was also a friend of uh, Paul Krasner's, and interestingly enough, uh, he had ended up working... Uh, with Larry Flint as well uh, during the mid to late seventies, uh, and in mm-hmm. fact, I believe he was actually the guy who had helped uh, Paul Krasner get his job working at Hustler uh, at the beginning. I,
2: I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that all goes back to the comedy scene of uh, being a stand Paul's or youth as a stand-up comic in New York um, in the fifties when he met Lenny Bruce. Dick Gregory was also part of that scene. I would think that they probably go back at least that far.
1: And also with Mark Wayne as an attorney, he had represented uh, the People's Temple um, after Jonestown, and he Mm -hmm. had also represented, um, oh gosh, the Liberty Lobby uh, run by the notorious anti-Semite Willis Cardo, who also funded the Institute of Historical Review, which for decades was the premier Holocaust denial organization in the yeah United he States.
2: did he he went an interesting direction from the kennedy assassination to that yeah <laughs> that's an interesting line
1: so yeah there's uh fascinating stuff with that um well anyway uh let's see here so laura were there any other names you can think of that may might have known in the counterculture that we haven't talked about yet
2: i mean I don't, I, 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 no, I really can't think of any, anybody else um, of any stature off the top of my head that we haven't already talked about.
1: All right. Well, let's get into the status of women in these circles, i.e. these kind of parapolitical circles, um, because obviously May would have been about the only, I think, really prominent female researcher such so yep. I've married Pharaoh around this time. So um, Laura, do you want to start us off then?
0: well you know
2: if you look at it's no different than what was going on in the rest of the culture and even more specifically if you, the, the same people what you would call the, were were players in what you would call the counterculture and there has been lots written by women about that time, about how sexist the the men who were running the, the radical political movements of the time were, that women were expected to do women's things like cook and clean and run a Xerox machine and not be part of the thinking of the, they were supposed to be wives, essentially. And, um, and May was, for a woman of her generation, she was in a position where she didn't have to work. She, you know, her family, she, she, wasn't, she didn't grow up poor. She had options and, and was a stay-at-home mom, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but she didn't out of the box choose to go to work rather than get married and have children. And so she came upon those kind of choices um, later in her life. Her kids weren't tiny by the time she, by the time by the time she moved moved into this, and she also had. I, I mean, I have read that she was very much a hands-on mom, but I, but I would imagine she had some help. In a big house, I don't know how you take care of five kids, cooking the meals, and cleaning a large home, and also read all 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report. <laughs> um, and and archivists, you might know differently, but, but part of what I'm saying is that because she had at least some means culturally, uh, financially, socially, right, to have, um, it gave her the time to become the respected researcher that she was.
3: I think that's also important. From my understanding, she didn't have any help around the house whatsoever. She did it all between the cooking and the cleaning and doing her research and running the kids around. May was like this superwoman of her time, seriously. I
2: bet, I bet, because, you know, you've got five kids. And I mean, it's probably a pretty decent sized house. That's a lot of work. So good for her. and I I still do think that class plays a little bit into her ability to do, to go through that transformation just because it has to, um, the limitations of, um, poverty, um, make things can, you know, particularly for women at the time. And so being solidly middle-class in that era, um, Made a difference in in the choices that she had.
3: I think it did probably and, too, but yeah. but she took the status that she had, and she helped the the underdogs and everything yes. from political prisoners and you know people that needed assistance. She would go and get them lawyers, and would help people get out of jail. And she had a great respect for people, and you know just the population as a whole, and she didn't like to see inequality.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, she's absolutely, I mean, that's part of the kind of radicalization that happens with people who didn't struggle and become aware of struggle. And I also think that, that growing up in in the in 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 the in the home that she grew up in with where the idea of service of of taking care of helping in the world the larger world that you have a role to play it's not just about yourself um probably fed into that as well because her parents were both people who did things like that too in their own way
1: Archivist, do you know if did she was she always uh, socially aware, or did it happen like more so after she became interested in the Kennedy assassination, or did that only enhance her commitment to social activism?
3: It enhanced her commitment because uh, when she was younger and traveled the world, she saw the inequality with people and how they lived. So when she saw the Kennedy assassination and saw how crazy it was that these things could happen in our country, um, that really lit a fire for her.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see that. Well, getting into how May was perceived more broadly by the emerging parapolitical community, because in a lot of ways we kind of think of this whole crowd from the seventies going into the eighties as the golden age of uh, this you know whole discipline. So, but how did they perceive May? Uh, do you want to start us off, Archivist?
3: Oh, sure. Um, in the beginning, she was perceived as a kook, a person who couldn't trust authority. And that she was a paranoid, a conspiracy nut. But um, during the time when she was talking about all the things that she does, people would start to listen and would ask questions and read things on their own. And May listened to the lies, and she was able to see through them and see what she felt was a cover-up. She was validated in 1967 when Jim Garrison, um, she helped him in a way, and there's a story behind her. Um, plane trip to go see him in 1967, which will come up later. And then after um, 1972 and after the Watergate break-in, she talked with Paul Krasner and within three weeks she wrote the article for The Realist. So it, it, somehow May was watching the same people who were involved in Dallas and then there they were in the White House at the Watergate being liars and cheaters and crooks. Um, Then people started listening to what she had to say after the validation, especially about Watergate. And she had so many different topics she covered from genetic warfare, poisonous vaccination, murdering the truth tellers, the peacemakers, and the people who thought for themselves, rock stars, etc. So she really had a wide variety of things today that influenced um, the researchers of today. Uh, it was a groundwork for where we start and then we build upon um, the ideas that she laid down for us. And um, in fact, one of her shows from 1986 was removed by YouTube on our channel for being dis- disinformation on something about COVID. Oh, it was 1986. Yeah, uh, they they struck down three of our videos from 1986. Um, I appealed it. They put two back up, but the third one they would not put back up because of what I said. So even back in 1986, she was having an effect on people.
2: But this doesn't make any sense. COVID didn't exist in 1986. I don't understand
3: Exactly, and I mean, I could send you the show if you want, or I have a link to it um, privately. And it, it's just crazy. I mean, I, and then they just said no, you can't fight with us anymore, and they wouldn't put it back up.
0: Wow,
2: it's really, really a shame. And it's, uh, I mean, May was on the radio, and she ended up being syndicated. Right? She wasn't. She started just in the Bay Area, and then it was. She was. uh, um, I don't know whether it was technically syndicated, but she, but she uh, eventually got a national read, and I think that there's a lot of. I mean, back then you didn't have the internet, right? You. Had no, to she... really dig for this stuff, and I know for me, hearing a woman on the on on the radio talking about these things was so empowering, and so important.
3: There was no internet. There was nothing. Mae took a lot of newspapers between six and eight a day. She would go through them. She would put together her shows. She would mail out cassettes to people with bibliography sheets about everything she talked to, all from her home.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: I don't even, I can't comprehend doing all that now, let alone having five kids. I mean, that's yeah. crazy.
2: I know. <laughs> I, think that's I really, awesome. I, I really can't understand how she did it all. I think she must not have slept very much.
1: I mean, I think you can see that, too, is where potentially her class status had really benefited her because it gave her the means, I think, of nothing else to uh, compile that kind of material. Uh, it was mm-hmm. interesting because I know in uh, Paul Kressner's autobiography, he... Uh, had reported uh, an interesting conversation that he had had with May. Um, at one point, she had mentioned uh, quite accurately uh, to him that something like 80% of the intelligence that the CIA gathers uh, is actually uh, open source uh, intelligence mm-hmm. I mean, meaning that it's taken out of newspapers and things of that nature television and so forth which is still to this day uh how we yeah. gather the principal amount of our data or how we gather the principal amount of our intelligence uh, in fact you could argue that that's maybe one of the reasons why facebook and twitter were created to enhance the ability to data mine but that's another topic <laughs> uh, but regardless may consumed a tremendous amount of uh this information through these means not unlike how the cia or um, other intelligence agencies within this country and abroad do so as well and it was kind of interesting at one point Paul krasner and asked her and this would have been probably i think around 72 73 why um, the intelligence circles hadn't tried to assassinate her yet and or recruit uh, her well, or recruit well, what she, i was getting to she said because she was such a good intelligence gatherer and analyst. She thought that they let her operate because she did their job for them. In a lot of I
2: think that very well may be true. And the, the, it's not the information per se. It's the ability to see the patterns.
1: Yeah. And to
2: see the connections. It's a particular way that a person's mind works. And it is rare. It's, Everybody thinks they can do that but but the the superpower that someone like may had especially before the technology made it easier that's an amazing mind
1: uh yeah i mean i i can't really say much about this but it, if that might seem outlandish to some people but um uh, I've been told that before in other contexts. Let's just mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. Uh, by people mm-hmm. in positions to know about these kinds of things. So,
2: yeah,
1: yeah I think that essentially, no, they
2: definitely she, recruit people that May way. Was
1: basically running a private intelligence service more or less. Yeah. So, since <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was definitely doing something that was useful in a lot of ways to. I think, different factions within the intelligence community, which is, again, probably one of the reasons why she was so revered and then later had so many issues, as we'll get to here in just a second. Mm -hmm. But um, before we get into that, though, right quick, Laura, could you just get into a little bit about uh, May kind of taking on the persona of a Jewish scholar?
2: Well, this is um, the highest goal of Jewish society is not to be wealthy, it is to be a scholar. In traditional European Jewish communities before the Napoleonic era, when they were brought into the, the mainstream culture, they it was a ins- very insular, I mean, literally they would be locked in, right? And you had various strata, of society, just like anywhere else, you had the people, the workers, the people who did manual labor, and shopkeepers, right? That kind of thing. And then you had um, the higher level, the Jewish banker, because one of the only professions that Jews were allowed was banking, because usury is a sin. So the Jews can do it, right? And so that that's how the whole Jewish banker and all the conspiracy theories around that grew, in that. One of the ways to not have to pay back the money you owe is to accuse the person you owe money of a blood libel, basically. Uh, so you, uh, but all of those people were, were part of a community and that community supported the scholars, the rabbis, obviously, but also just scholars in general learning the the people who had the highest status in the community were people who sat around and read books all day and uh, very and argued intellectual I- ideas the famous you know the and and challenged each other constantly. It was a very verbal kind of intellectual interaction. And they were supported by the rest of the community. They didn't have to work. Their job was to do exactly what May ended up doing, to absorb information and interpret it. Now you could argue that if you look at the trajectory trajectory of her family, you can see that right that you have the 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 people still in Europe and they are um, they've already gone through that modernization post Napoleon so they've gone past those early levels in the culture and they're not low level workers they're educated people who are members of the masons and participating in the larger society and owning and being and involved with art and fashion right her her, her great-grand- the, i Madden was the place where the wealthiest women in california shopped for clothing um and the height of fashion and then you have that then a few generations later, you have are the the most important reform rabbi in the country, May's father. So be pre before her generation, the generation before her reached that pinnacle. And she so she became then what do you do after that, right? And and it's also not because it's also not about the women necessarily moving through that progression, at least not traditionally. And so she, it's like she bested her father on a certain level because her father was still involved within a structure, right? Within the structure of society, he was a conservative, he was involved in influencing the culture, on the highest of levels, giving speeches at presidential inaugurations, but he played within the lines, very much so. What's the next step intellectually from that? If the goal is to be the best thinker, the greatest thinker, it's to challenge all those lines, to explode out of the limitations imposed by the culture, and that's what May did. And I think that's why her father said what he said about her in that interview. He didn't agree with her at all. From the dates that I'm hearing, she may have already written that Watergate.
1: Yeah, I believe she had. She had been published. Article.
2: And Nixon was her father's really good friend. He wasn't just a political contact. They were buddies. She would have known Nixon. He was at their home. There are pictures. Uh, so it was, uh, I mean, th- he was a, 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 a personal friend of her father's. There are pictures of her parents with Richard and Pat Nixon in social situations. On the, so,
1: on the note you know. Kind of outside of like an organization too, it's sort of interesting too. I've I meant to point this out before, but when she started interacting and engaging with the counterculture um i believe she would have been fairly older than a lot of the people she was in, by the early 70s she was in like her early 40s correct
3: she was born in 1922 math oh, is not okay. my strong suit so oh well, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. She
1: 72. Her, so she would have been in her 50s actually 50s so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah so she would have you know certainly been at least a generation or so older than a lot of the people that we've been discussing here that she was engaging with um so you know that's another kind of interesting well yeah,
2: and just as Paul Crosner was too,
1: well, I think she would have actually been about ten years older than Paul too at that because I think Paul was born in thirty 30- three Three, if i remember correctly yeah okay so yeah she she would have been about a decade but yeah i mean she was um a wee bit older than many of the other people who are making this scene too and also kind of given her background i mean it was um it was definitely a fascinating transition that she made at this point in her life to put it mildly (laughs) um well, also, too, May endured some personal tragedies throughout her life, and I believe that uh, they really started to get going in the early 70s. Now, there's a lot online about what became of her daughters, and it's rather dubious. Um, archivist, uh, can you give us sort of uh, some of the narratives of this and what really happened?
3: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to put the truth out there on what happened with her daughters. Um, In 1970, there was a car crash that killed daughter Bonnie and six other people, but her daughter Barbara lived, but she was in the hospital. I mean, she had broken legs, shattered things, broken back, and she really, uh, Barbara rose from that. And um, one of the other interesting, I'll say interesting, rumors was that Barbara's husband was the one who caused the accident that killed Bonnie and everybody else. And that's definitely not true. And there's also rumors that he's CIA and all sorts of things. And I know her husband and though he was military and had that connection, um, he had nothing to do with that accident. And he was not in a three-lettered organization whatsoever. And... It's really ugly the rumors that get thrown around about that because it, it was really a heartbreaking time for May and Barbara and the rest of the family. I mean that was a tough loss. Um, there were so many attempts on May's life, and the um, her son was dosed with bad government acid. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happened to May and her family. Um, the show of ten twenty seven seventy eight. You can hear it all come from May herself and everything she endured um, doing all this research and putting these tapes out there. And it took a lot to scare May off. So um, thank you for letting me clear that up. There's just so it's ugly and that's it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And i I don't want to get uh too much into this, but I'll uh, just to say that some of these allegations were coming from a uh, certain uh uh website known as spitfire um you can probably figure out who runs that so and um there is an article making these allegations that doesn't even get the time frame right as to when uh Mae's Donner lost her life and uh, as Laura and I both agree, it's also very poorly written.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're speaking of. And it's it's just a shame that, you know, just like anything on the Internet, people read it and they think it's the truth. And it was just a horrible time for the, the Brussels family. And I'm just happy to get the truth out there.
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much for clarifying that. Well. Towards um, the very end of her life, May began to seriously investigate Colonel Michael Aquino. There are accounts that Aquino threatened her. So Archivist, can you get into what actually transpired between May and Colonel Aquino?
3: Uh, yes, I can. May had been talking about uh, Colonel Michael Aquino and what was going on at the Presidio for a while. Um, Previous to that, there's this house across the street from may that um she swore up and down that um certain government officials moved into to monitor her and and so michael aquino allegedly picked up the phone and called may and said um you stop talking about me and the presidio or you're going to end up like one of those people you talk about so that scared her off the air for the last time And her last show was on June 13th of 1998. Um, She got that fast acting Jack Ruby cancer. And um, she passed away on October 3rd of 1998. Um, That morning of October 3rd, mysteriously, that house across the street burned to the ground. So take that as you may. Wow.
1: yeah i mean it's uh definitely something and i mean the whole thing with Aquino too uh could potentially be quite a rabbit hole with that uh for a couple of reasons as i had uh, kind of alluded to before he was active in that whole uh, scene around the magical child uh the part of uh paul krasner's Bronner milieu were also active in um ed saunders i could kind of throw in there <clears throat> was another guy who was participating in that scene around the magical child too in the 1970s. In fact, he actually ran the only other major uh, kind of magic shop in the city in the 70s as well. So these guys knew each other quite well. Um, But Aquino was attending uh, the University of California at Santa Barbara during the mid-1970s after he had returned uh, from Vietnam, which uh, is again in this sort of region. Uh, It's not that far from Esalen, correct, Laura?
2: no yes it, it is not that far from, that is correct
1: so yeah and it's um he was also interacting a lot with the center for the study of democratic institutes as well which is quite interesting because that uh had a reputation for actually being quite a liberal think tank so i would
2: say when you say not that far it's not like Carmel to send a big Sur close it's a few hours drive but yeah. Santa Barbara Santa Barbara is sort of midway, and that's still Northern California, so it's you're still that, I don't know, three, four-hour drive, probably, between the two.
1: Okay. But on top of that, too, Colonel Kino, obviously, he uh, grew up in uh, the Bay Area. Of course, his mother um, was from that whole region, and that uh, was, uh, again, a part of the uh, kind of high society in san francisco where she knew members of the crocker family and uh the stanfords and some of the other really prestigious uh families in this region so it also raises a strong possibility that she may have known members of uh may's family as well uh, especially since uh as i had found when i went through betty ford Aquino's uh papers that i've managed to procure and when i was in wisconsin at one point she was actively involved um The San Francisco Reconstruction uh, Group, I can't remember the full name, but it was uh, involved in basically uh, rezoning the city in the late 50s, early 1960s. It was driven a lot by the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce um, to bring uh, or to make the uh, whole region a little bit more business friendly for their future agendas. So May had family members that were tied into all of this. So there's just... A lot of interesting things with how uh, she might have intersected with parts of his family or, more broadly speaking, some of the people that uh, she was connected to through the counterculture might have had interactions with him well before she started officially investigating him. So, you know, again, it does raise the distinct possibility that this was one of the reasons why uh, Aquino was especially rattled by her starting to look into him, because it was potentially hitting a lot closer to home than many of the other people looking at him at the same time. Well, um, getting into the May Brussels Research Center, I know there were some rumblings that the files were missing for a time, so what all happened with that archivist, and what does it state now?
3: Um, the, the files were never actually lost, so to speak. Um, when John Judge... Um, gave them to Tom Davis, then Tom Davis um, gave them to a private citizen who uh, didn't let the daughters do what they wanted to do with it. But recently, um, the files and the archives have gone back to the Russell family. And right now we are attempting to scan and digitize it all for the world for free and put it up on the website. Um, but we need donations of money and also of people's time if they would volunteer to help us because I had gone out to California for a month, six weeks, maybe, and I was scanned every day and I was scanning and just the stuff in there is so, I can't even put it into words and just the touch for things. It was just an amazing time. But I scanned for a good month and I did two TVs of scanning and that didn't even put a dent into things. So we need everybody that would like to come together and either monetarily help us so we can um get things we're looking to get maybe a home to have as a rent something to have as a headquarters for all this. And then further on down the road, what we would really love is to have a permanent housing for May's collection where people can actually come in and interact and see May's things and also have like a little counter of you know May items and have treats that May would make for sale and things like that. And that would be our ultimate goal. So we could use all the help that we could get from people and it'd be so greatly appreciated. Um, from one of the daughters said, if everybody who listened and supported May's work would give a dollar, just even a dollar, we could pull this off and get this to completion
2: I I, I think that that is doable okay. I, uh, and also can we have a recipe book?
3: <laughs> you know I, I can ask all things are possible you know
1: <laughs> would I would think that could be a lot of awesome fun book. yeah Yeah. Yeah. Uh. I,
3: in the grand scheme of things, just to have you know her stuff and just have like a Mayism, just a place of May, because mm-hmm. she did so many great things and did so much research, and and should be honored in a way that is you know correct for what she has accomplished, and also so generations further on down the road know that there was someone in the '60s that cared enough to do all this research and join with a few of the researchers that were um, looking into the assassination of John Kennedy at the time. And that was what really started, I think, the the downfall of society. I mean, that's a whole other Mm -hmm. conversation. So, yeah, I just think that, you know, if people could help us, it would be fantastic.
1: I think there
2: are a lot of people out there who are going to want to help.
1: Real quick, Archivist, what is the uh, website that folks can go to?
3: Um, it is the May Research Library.com. We're also found on YouTube where all of May's shows and um, talks that she had given in her life that we would have. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Tim Canale, actually, who is still part of the project, he uh, was the one who saved all the tapes and made it possible to have them today. So we have uploaded them to YouTube on the May Brussels Project channel for everybody to listen to and comment on as well.
1: Fantastic, and we will also have links uh, in the description for this as well uh, as long as uh, as well as links to uh, the realist archive, which is quite uh, excellent for this research as well. but yeah guys uh, definitely consider checking this out and giving your support. Obviously, may had a lot of groundbreaking research, and among other things, I mean she really was at the forefront of crafting. Uh, what we think of now as parapolitics, uh, she really doesn't get a lot of the recognition to this that she rightfully should. Uh, A lot of it goes to people like Peter Dale Scott or Alfred McCoy, and Mm -hmm. rightfully so, uh, but May was in the game uh, at least as long as many of them uh, were.
2: Longer. I mean, McCoy was much younger than her.
1: Yeah, well, definitely McCoy. I don't, I mean, I know Scott didn't start publishing until the early 70s as well, but I'm not sure how far back his research went but regardless she was just absolutely instrumental in establishing what we now think of as parapolitics and specifically i just i don't know that we would even have the whole body of research um chronicling the post-war fascist international if it were not for may Brussel. again i mean a lot of people like peter Dale scott and kevin coogan have done a lot of great scholarly research on this but may uh predated them as well as the individual behind Spitfire so you know this is <laughs> something to keep in mind here um she you know the lineage from her all the way up through again works like I like Coogan or Peter Lavenda or something in this context. Well, I mean, in the case of Lavenda, you can directly see this with you know the lineage of uh, Paul Krasner himself, Norman Mailer, and what have you. And mm-hmm. just... I
3: mean, she never used a computer; she used the typewriter for everything. So she has these big, big binders of typewritten stuff that reference pages of the Warren Commission, typed that out, and typed her thoughts on that and there's page upon page and binder upon binder of that alone she collected thousands of books she has 40 filing cabinets and many many other boxes full of binders and research so it's going to take a village
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: all right um so uh do you ladies have any closing thoughts here um laura do you want to go
2: I just think that, as you said earlier, she is a um, – she deserves a much higher profile with all of this new interest in parapolitics. I mean, I've been into this stuff for decades, and there's so much more and it, it, more discussion and interest in it than there used to be. And in part, that's because of the internet – and part of the reason that she has not, I think, gotten the attention she deserved is because it, she's not as represented on the internet as a lot of other people. And so that's a big part of what helping with this archive can correct, because it's, I think it's an important piece of the story from uh, the bird's eye view of how this entire realm of thinking and discussion has developed over the years and there still are almost no women involved in it
1: yeah which is quite unfortunate Uh, which is again another reason why may deserves uh, even more recognition than she already gets well, um, archivist, do you have uh, any closing thoughts for us?
3: Uh, I just would like to thank you for having me on to discuss May's life and her work. And I appreciate the opportunity. And if people could just visit, it's very bare bones right now, but it's where all the archives are going to be located. That's com. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Definitely check it out, folks. Well, on that note, I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, this podcast. I think there's definitely been a lot of uh, pretty significant information we have dropped here. So hopefully um, you guys will spread the good word and we can hopefully get uh, some interest in the May Brussels Research Project here because it is worthy of uh, a broader audience and broader support from the conspiracy community or truth community or whatever the heck it is calling itself now anyway (laughs) (laughs) So on that note we will sign off for now as always thank you guys so much for your support and good night and good luck to you all
0: Say nothing Don't nobody breathe a word. Mary Magdalene came for our dinner. We had octopus and capers. We drank Lamb's blood cabernet. We sang songs about Jesus Christ As the sirens wailed Not half a block away Who cars on the street now Seems like half of Springfield is always burning down As I bent down to wash her feet and I could smell her sweetness It was like the life from the ocean Mary asked me Do you like it? And I said, can I kiss you here? She said, of course you can, my dear. It was like the light from the ocean. I told Mary, yes, I do. Yes, I do. But don't nobody say nothing. I've never been one to kiss Anne tell, but I'm a lucky man, yes I am, For Mary Magdalene, stayed for breakfast, we ate oysters, eggs and ham, we reminisced on the son of man, and I knew that, well it was gonna be a good day. But don't nobody say nothing. And as she turned towards my door, Mary, I have one question more. She said, You want to know how you measure up, don't you? She said it's hard to understand But take my word underneath it all Jesus was only a man Shh. Don't nobody say nothing If the word got out the pain.